success. Okay, so uh, a couple of things. Uh, I spoke yesterday on the internet about Lexio Divina, and it's a big topic. Uh, in one sense, it's very simple. You read the Bible. You know. In another sense, the church has her own way of interpreting the Bible. And so I'm hoping that I'll be able to do some uh, blog posts on Lexio Divina explaining the senses of Scripture. Uh, when we read the Old Testament, for example, we, we don't read it literally. And if we do, then we start wondering, you know, why are we eating pork? Uh, that kind of thing. Or, um, you know, why, why don't we sacrifice animals in the temple? Uh, this is because with the coming of Christ, the, the signs, the symbols of the Old Testament were fulfilled and revealed for what they really meant. But this requires us then to read with the eyes of faith. And there's a whole sort of technique to that that the church fathers developed that I will explore to, to help you uh, if you want to do Lexio Divina. It is a, a pretty major part of Benedictine spirituality. We have about an hour and a half a day of Lexio. Uh, I would say for, for you all, depending on your personal facility and time availability and so on, you know, if you could do 15 minutes a day, five or six days a week, that would be terrific. You know, consistency is the key thing. Um, and, uh, but I, I talked about this more on the internet yesterday, and then I'll, uh, I just, I, I felt like 20 minutes wasn't enough to introduce the topic, so I want to make sure to give a little more expression, and I want you to know that that'll be there. Uh, for these talks on the Sunday uh, meetings, every other month, I'm going to be unpacking the rule of St. Benedict for you. And today I'd like to talk about virtue and knowledge. And this will require kind of excavation of the sources of Benedict's rule. So let me begin by um, something that came up at Mass today. We had a deacon with, we have a deacon with us. He's on his uh, ordination retreat. And um, we, we rarely have deacons. And since I was ordained priest, I think I've had a deacon at Mass maybe three times in 12 years. <laughs> So uh, I had to look up, and then we, we have a new missile since the last time I had a deacon. You know, I haven't had a deacon serve at the altar since the new translation came out in 2010. So I had to go and check, well, what, what's the blessing for the, the gospel? Because <laughs> he comes and asks for a blessing. And the blessing says, um, uh, may the Lord God uh, purify your heart and your mouth that you may proclaim his gospel worthily and well. And this struck me, because I was working on this talk, worthily, what does it mean to do something worthily? It means to have a lifestyle, a way of life, uh, a purity of behavior that makes one worthy of saying these sacred words to others and, and uh, embodying them, as it were. So uh, someone who proclaims the gospel unworthily is someone who would be living a life that's not consistent with the diaconal or, or presbyteral state, right? So it's a question of behavior. Uh, and well, what does this mean? St. Benedict says, you know, not everybody should just pick up the book and read it, but only those who can edify the hearers. Uh, and this is to say that if I read a text for other people, I, I have to understand it at some level. You know, we can all read words one after the other. Um, most of us can. Unfortunately, illiteracy is, is on the rise these days in our country. But just because I can read one word after another doesn't mean I understand uh, or, or can read in a way that helps others to understand what the gospel is saying. So it requires intelligence and knowledge. And so these are the two things I was uh, talking about. Virtue, virtuous behavior, virtuous life, and knowledge. Understanding of the, the message of the gospel. What, is it, what does it really mean? In uh, chapter 64 of the rule, this is on uh, how to constitute an abbot. How do we elect an abbot? Uh, the community says that they should choose one of their own number, uh, a monk who is known for his merit of life and his doctrine. Okay, so uh, a worthy life and an ability to teach what the gospel message is. Now, a reader of this text in St. Benedict's Rule who's not familiar with the monastic tradition 
might not think about why these two things are chosen as markers for someone who's worthy to be the abbot. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll just say shorthand, we'll call the first one virtue, even though what uh, St. Benedict actually says here is merito or merit, uh, and then doctrine or knowledge. But St. Benedict actually is drawing on actually a very long tradition that goes back through the Desert Fathers all the way back to Plato, actually, and Socrates in Greek philosophy. Um, but the classic expression is in the Desert Fathers, the monks of the 3rd and 4th centuries. Monks and nuns, by the way, there were desert mothers too. Uh, they were fewer, but uh, they were there. But these are persons who, uh, meditating on the scriptures, came up with this twofold understanding of spiritual growth. Okay, so change of behavior, change of understanding. Uh, what is this all about? First, let me uh, point out a couple other instances of virtue and knowledge in the rule. In the last chapter of St. Benedict's Rule, chapter 73, he writes this. The reason we have written this rule is that by observing it in monasteries, we can show that we have some degree of virtue and the beginnings of the monastic life. But for anyone hastening on to the perfection of monastic life, there are the teachings of the Holy Fathers. Uh, in both cases now, the two quotes I've given you from the rule, virtue comes first, and then understanding or teaching or knowledge, wisdom comes second. Uh, this, is, this reflects a stage of growth. We start with reforming our behavior, and then by the reform of our behavior, we become able to understand certain things. Uh, we might also say this in a, in, the, in a different way. If I am uh, reluctant to give up a vice that I have, I might rationalize my behavior, which is to say I might bend my mind in such a way to say things that aren't quite true, to defend uh, the, the choices I've made. Okay? Um, uh, my, I've, I'm, next week, uh, my father celebrates eight years of sobriety. Thanks be to God. And uh, yeah, each year I join him at his AA meeting and we celebrate his birthday. And um, uh, one of the things you hear at these meetings over and over again is how someone who is struggling with an alcohol addiction rationalizes, you know, makes up excuses, doesn't think clearly, <laughs> doesn't think with... Uh, uh, objectivity. <laughs> but this is true of any vice that we have. Any, any kind of passion that's controlling our lives will cause us, um, you know, I, I drink too much caffeine, but I can say, yes, but I'm very busy. <laughs> right? Is that true? You know, is that a wise thing? Uh, so, so our passions can get in the way of clear thinking. And that's why virtue comes first and then knowledge. And this is what we're going to unpack today. touch on later is that even though I'm talking about these two things as stages, 
Uh, actually, we're involved in a kind of battle on both fronts all the time. So it's a, it is, there's a question of renewing our minds in the gospel, like knowing what's important in life, but then also learning to change our behaviors as well. And so we're constantly going back. So the, I think, um, uh, you know, giving the, the true, grasping at the, the truth of who we are based in a knowledge of the gospel gives us incentive to live a life that's consonant with it. So that's important at the outset. But it's also true that the more we change, the more we realize where we're going. The, the clearer idea we have of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I'll, I'll touch on that a little more later on. But thank you for mentioning that. So um, so I'm, one of the things I want to say about the rule of St. Benedict in this context is that it is primarily concerned with the question of virtue, the first of these two. And uh, St. Benedict, I think, believes that if we learn virtuous life, living, uh, this will naturally lead monks and nuns who are following the rule to desire knowledge and wisdom. Okay? Uh, If we look at the end of chapter 7 in the rule, this is the ladder of humility. This is a longer quotation now. Having climbed all these steps of humility, therefore, the monk will presently come to that perfect love of God, which casts out fear. And all those precepts, which formerly he had not observed without fear, he will now begin to keep by reason of that love, without any effort, as though naturally and by habit. In a sense, this idea of naturally doing the thing we're supposed to do as if by habit It's kind of a nice definition of virtue, actually. Uh, No longer will the monk's motive be the fear of hell, but rather the love of Christ, good habit and delight in the virtues, which the Lord will deign to show forth by the Holy Spirit in his servant now cleansed from vice and sin. Okay, end of quote. Now, this mention of vice will be important for me to give more and more background as to what St. Benedict is assuming we know when he writes this. Uh, the goal is uprooting vice in ourselves. Vices are bad habits. Okay? They are things that cause us, dispose us to sin, that we have a hard time battling against. So um, uh, each, each of us usually has a favorite vice that's especially difficult, that depends to some extent on our temperament. So for instance, uh, you know, vice I've struggled with all my life is anger. Uh, I, I'm sort of like the type one choleric personality. <laughs> you know, I, I have lots of energy, very quickly engaged, and I never forget anything. <laughs> unless, it, unless it's uh, that uh, I was just joking with somebody about how I always say, oh, this will be easy. <laughs> I forget that. I'm, I'm always wrong when I say that. Uh, but that's, that's uh, maybe pride, another vice of mine. Uh, so there, we all have these, though. So a, a melancholic temperament will be more inclined to sadness or depression, uh, and, and so on. Um, a sanguine personality will have more trouble with vices of the flesh, uh, etc. Um, so the goal is to uproot these vices, these bad habits, and plant virtue, which uh, these are not exactly habits anymore, but it's a disposition that I'll talk about later on a disposition to know the right thing to do in every circumstance, even difficult circumstances. Uh, That's the first stage. The second stage, then, is the dispelling of ignorance and illumination in knowledge, true knowledge of God. So we move from darkness to light, both in in our behavior and in our understanding. So, I've I've stuck with the rule of St. Benedict. Now I want to do the excavation part. We find out what are his sources Where is he getting this from? What's he expecting us to know in addition to his rule? So if we go back to RB 73 again, chapter 73, uh, he recommends some reading for us. Among the reading uh, he gives us are the Institutes and Conferences of the Fathers, he says. He doesn't name the author here, but we all know that he means St. John Cashin. And uh, these two primary books, the Institutes and Conferences, are the two major works that Cashin wrote. Uh, They were especially influential for the master, who 
I've mentioned a couple times in these talks, is the immediate inspiration for Benedict's rule. So Benedict is traditionally born in 480. Cassian's born in 360. They're about three generations, four generations apart. The master's somewhere in between. Uh, Cashin wrote these two books and intended them to be read together. So at the beginning of the Institutes, he actually says, I'm going to write conferences. Uh, the conferences are his recollections of meeting with the great Abbas of the desert. The Institutes, he writes, to help the monks of Gaul, or modern-day France, to learn how to live monastic life the way they do in Egypt. And uh, the Institutes take the form more of a rule of life. Okay. Uh, the first, there are 12 books in the Institutes. The first four books give us the canonical hours of prayer, the canonical garb of monks, what monks are supposed to wear, how much we're supposed to eat, all those sorts of pra practical things we need to know. But the last eight books, each of them deal with one of the primary vices. And the vices for Cassian are gluttony, lust, avarice, anger, sadness, Acedia, which is a kind of spiritual boredom, uh, uh, unwillingness to, to pray, vainglory and pride. Okay, those are the eight traditional vices. We're going to talk more about them. So the institutes are concerned with correct behavior, again, with learning virtue, learning how to expel vice. Uh, if, if you want to do a great... Uh, examination of conscience, you know, read a little bit of Cashin's Institutes every day. His uh, understanding of the vices and how they're slippery is really fascinating. You know, for instance, in his chapter on gluttony, he says there are, there are three types of gluttony. The one we all know is eating too much. But there's also sort of being picky about food, you know, having to have exactly what I want. There are stories of the desert fathers, you know, somebody goes to visit an Abba, and he says, you know, have you any sauce for this bread? Sauce? <laughs> we eat just, just plain bread in this cave. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's, there's pickiness about eating, and then there's eating at the wrong time. Okay, so, so for us in the modern world, this would be like grazing all day. <laughs> Instead of having breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or as the monks did, just one meal in the middle of the day, uh, we just kind of snack on potato chips or whatever all the time. And Cashin has this very subtle understanding that all of these are ways of undermining uh, a true appreciation of the goodness of food. Like, and these are ways of manipulating food for our own purposes, for our own desires. Uh, so, and he has these uh, unpackings of all of these vices in various ways. A uh, very helpful book. It's also much shorter than the conferences. It has that virtue. The conferences are about 900 pages, so uh, it's, it's not easy. But the conferences, uh, what's interesting about them is that these, as I said, are teachings of the great hermits of the desert, the Abbas, on spiritual knowledge, you know, it's this really deep stuff about uh, the meaning of human nature, the meaning of prayer, the meaning of uh, the, the union of the human and divine in Christ, etc. So it's about knowledge rather than virtue. So again, Cashin has us begin with the institutes, reforming our lives and our behavior, learning virtue, and then once we've done that, we can understand the deeper teachings of the fathers of the conferences. All right. Question, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that a good place to go for theological understanding of the body? In Cashin? Yeah. Uh, conference four on the flesh and the spirit is very good, very helpful. Yeah. Very positive uh, estimation of the body as, as providential for us as humans. So, yeah. Actually, Cashin is, is sort of uh, scandalously interested in the, the workings of the body. Uh, a couple of the chapters in the most ancient translations, uh, not ancient, but say the 19th century translations, the Victorian translators didn't translate certain parts because they deal with male sexuality in a way that, that was too frank for 19th century English persons. Uh, and, and it has the disadvantage then is that it's meant for men, but, but he's, he's very open about our embodiedness. You know, that's not something that 
Cashin's at all ashamed of. Yeah. Is this a book that is available at the gift store? I don't Can remember. I, I was thinking if we don't have it, I should make sure we have it because they're, they're really good books to read from good, solid monastic doctrine. Um, I, I read the conferences constantly, just, just kind of on you know, uh, continual play, I guess you'd say. Sorry, did you have a particular translation you liked? Boniface Ramsey. Uh, he's a former Dominican who did translations in the late 90s, and they are excellent, and the notes are excellent. Uh, he's a patristic scholar, so not only does he give you explanations of some of the difficult terminology, he can point you to other sources that help explain things. Uh, so, yeah. Um, good. He was just here last year. I, I don't know if those of you who remember when we were having the choir put in. We had one Sunday where the choir was empty and we were just sitting in chairs up there. And he was here. He was actually one of the concelebrating priests that day. <laughs> so uh, it was a, a great, it was great fun to talk to him about the conferences. Um, okay, so where are my, my notes here? So... The other thing to notice about the institutes and the conferences, the institutes are written for communities. Okay? St. Benedict's rule is written for communities. It's written for men and women living in common. The conferences are about hermits, individuals, anchorites, anchoresses. Okay? And um, if we look in the rule of St. Benedict, again, we'll see some parallels. So in Chapter 73 of the rule, Benedict indicates that beyond the rule, there's something more. There's the teachings of the Holy Fathers, right? And in another place in the rule, he also suggests that there's a manner of life that goes beyond what he intends to legislate for in his rule. And that is in chapter 1. So chapter 1 and chapter last, we have this idea. He talks about the two good kinds of monks. Okay, there are four kinds of monks. They're too good and too bad. Uh, and what's interesting about the bad monks is um, he takes this from the master. The master has these four kinds of monks. So the good monks are the Cenobites who live in community and the Anchorites who live on their own. The bad guys are sort of the, the corrupted versions of these. So the ones who live in sort of phony communities are called Cerebaites. And they live in twos and threes, but they don't have a superior. and They kind of live like bachelors. Uh, but they, they live together, uh, save on rent, I suppose. And then there are the gyrovags who live on their own but go from community to community, stay as long as they can in one place before they wear out their welcome and then go on somewhere else. Um, and uh, the master has this long, very, very funny description of gyrovags. And St. Benedict says, uh, the gyrovags, yeah, they, they go out from province to province causing problems. It's better not to speak about people uh, of this sort. So let's go back to talking about the Cenobites. So St. Benedict actually kind of rebukes the master on this point. Um, but uh, with the two kinds of good monks, we again have the community monks and the hermits. And St. Benedict actually says, I'm going to give you a long quote. Uh, the first kind of good of monks are the Cenobites, those who live in monasteries and serve under a rule and an abbot. The second kinds are the anchorites or hermits, those who no longer in the first fervor of their reformation, okay, so sort of more advanced monks, uh, after long probation in the monastery, having learned by the help of many brothers how to fight against the devil, they go out well armed from the ranks of the community to the solitary combat of the desert. They are able now, with no help save from God, to fight single-handed against the vices of the flesh and their own evil thoughts. Okay? So again, the progression is not only from community living to solitary living, but it's from external behaviors to internal thoughts. So to battle at the level of thoughts without any help from others. Uh, one of the things we do in community is we understand that it's difficult to know our own thinking without help. So it's helpful to manifest what we're thinking to somebody else and have him or her say, yeah, that sounds all right, or, well, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> right? And this is essentially what psychotherapy is about. Right? Uh, a, a patient opens his heart to a therapist, and the therapist helps the patient to have kind of an objective sense of what's going on. Uh, when, when a monk develops a certain 
facility for understanding his own or her own thoughts, then uh, he or she is ready to do this in single-handed combat. Yeah. Just a word on sure. psychotherapy. And I'm just speaking for myself as a psychologist in training. I feel like my own job is first just to sit with people and sort of be a compassionate mirror to whatever it is that's going on. Uh, and that non-judgmental aspect is really important because that's how you create the sacred space Yeah, you'll see this in the conferences, actually. Cashin has a number of stories, um, mostly about good Abbas who hear sort of the confession of a young monk who's struggling with various vices. And as soon as the monk just feels confident that this Abba will listen to him without judging him, as soon as he says whatever's on his mind, it's like the, the temptation goes away. <laughs> Uh, there are other cases where monks come to an Abba and the Abba scolds him and gets very angry and then God punishes the Abba. <laughs> with, with whatever is bothering the, the young monk, the Abba suddenly is afflicted with the same temptation. Uh, so so Kashin has a very similar model. that uh, We call this in monastic circles eczemologesis. It's a fancy word. Ex, outside, external. Uh, Exomologesis. Mologesis is uh, just to speak. So to speak out loud whatever's on your mind to somebody who loves you and cares about you and can help you see it for what it is. Okay? Whether it needs correction or, or affirmation. Yeah. What does the end, what does the listener do when the vice is not liberated upon speaking? When this when they have to walk with it depends. <laughs> it depends on, on, on where the person's at, you know. Um, uh, you know, my experience in, in formation these days, you get, I mean, everybody entering the monastery these days comes from a vastly different place. Uh, it's, it's hard to know what, uh, I, I, part of virtue is that there aren't any rules. <laughs> I'll get to that, uh, why I'm saying that. Um, because I think it's, a, it's an important thing to understand about virtue. We sometimes think of virtue as being um, somehow, again, a, a habit whereby I sort of do the right thing as if by following rules. But actually virtues are more like um, having the wisdom to know, even in hard cases, what's the appropriate response. And uh, it's, that's not something that can be written down. It's something that comes through, through wisdom and experience. You know. So... Uh, so going back to St. Benedict's uh, chapter 1, again, we see a certain kind of progression mirrored in different symbols, different uh, states of life. We have the, the Cenobitic life concerned with the reformation of behavior and virtue. We have the Anchoritic life, which is concerned with learning about God, learning the truth about uh, revealed God's revelation. We also have a movement from exterior observable behaviors to interior thoughts. Okay, so a deepening of an interior life. Uh, this is a normal progression. Uh, I remember once uh, when I was young, younger than I am now, uh, I was discerning religious life and a friend of mine uh, who ultimately did not end up entering the monastery, but the two of us used to speak about it together a lot. He, he said, uh, you know, most people don't even realize they're thinking most of the time. <laughs> and this is true. We, we're all thinking all the time, but very few of us pay attention to what thoughts we have, whether they're good or not. Um, and uh, this takes practice. And so this is part of the monastic discipline is to learn to identify the fact, first of all, that I am thinking, to identify what it is I'm thinking, and then to discern, discriminate between good thoughts and bad thoughts. Thoughts that help me to flourish and help others to flourish, and the thoughts that diminish me in some way. And to embrace the ones that come from God, and to push away the ones that come from the devil. Okay. Um, so that's the interior life we're moving toward. And to get there, it's important to work. So for, for example, one of the things you'll find, it, it just... Yeah, I'll, I'll use coffee as an example. Um, 
If, if I go without coffee for a day, in addition to having a splitting headache, <laughs> uh, I might get ornery, right? And I might uh, realize that I'm very critical of my brothers. And what coffee does for me in that case, if that happens, coffee in some way obscures from me the fact that I have this disposition to be critical toward my brother because I feel kind of hyped up and I don't worry about the fact that they do all these crazy things. <laughs> but suddenly when I don't have my crutch there, all of these negative feelings start coming out, right? And uh, uh, then I have to deal with them. So first the behavior has to be corrected. I have to learn moderation. Uh, in what my intake of caffeine, of food, etc. And then from, from bridling my desires, I discover what's driving the desires, what sort of mindsets are actually, I'm trying to medicate myself <laughs> against through uh, abuse of caffeine or alcohol or food or whatever it is. Okay? So uh, this is a process we'll find over and over again if we do this. When we correct some kind of vice in our lives, we discover that behind that vice there's some thought pattern that's not in accord with the truth. Somehow is, is not consonant with what God has revealed about us and others. Okay? And then the battle on this level of thoughts is a, is a much more difficult battle, but it's much more fruitful because it's, it's like having a big, long lever. You can move a lot more of your spiritual life faster if you can address the thoughts behind the behaviors. But first we have to address the behaviors so we can recognize the thoughts for what they are and not the distorted versions that we get from the sort of crutches of behaviors, wrong behaviors that we have. Okay? Uh, imagine that's going to raise some questions. Let me, let me uh, press on for now, though. <clears throat> There's another, one last way that we can understand this twofold distinction in progress in our spiritual life. Uh, what we're actually looking at is an ancient distinction between uh, what we call the active life and the contemplative life. Now, beginning in the 13th century or so, uh, the church uh, created or recognized two different categories of religious life. The active life, which has some kind of apostolic uh, work, apostolate, we would say. Uh, so running schools or, or serving the poor or running hospitals caring for the sick, burying the dead, etc. Communities dedicated to those apostolic works would be called active communities. Okay? Whereas a community like ours, we're actually sort of classified as a contemplative community because we do not have an active apostolate. And so our work is prayer and hospitality, according to canon law. You can actually look at this in canon law. Uh, however, this is a, a sort of... Um, Reification, I guess. I'm trying to think of a non-geeky word to explain it, but uh, uh, it, it sort of freezes in place what happened a dynamic distinction between stages of life that we go back and forth between. So the active life is this working against the vices, changing my behavior, changing my actions so that I act in accord with God's commandments. Okay? And then the contemplative life is what blossoms naturally out of corrected behavior. It is a desire to know God more and more deeply. A desire to know the truth about God's creation and other people in a way that shows them the love and consideration they deserve. So uh, this is the older distinction of behavior and knowledge. Virtue and knowledge. Okay. <clears throat> now, to better understand this, I want to go back one more generation behind Cashin. And uh, to an author that Benedict probably did not know, but who has become very, very popular today, and I highly recommend his, his work, and his name is Evagrius Ponticus. Uh, Evagrius is a saint in the Syrian church. <laughs> um, he un very unfortunately uh, fell prey to a bunch of controversies, all of which happened after he was dead, so he was never able to defend himself. Uh, but a number of his writings had to go underground because they were considered uh, problematic. In my opinion, it's highly likely that the problematic parts of his writings are what we would call interpolations. They were written by later Syriac monks uh, and uh, 
based on speculations on cosmology and angels and so on, that actually in the texts we know that are really written by Evagrius, he's not that interested in these things. So um, he's been rehabilitated quite a lot in the last hundred years or so. And um, on the whole, I don't think there's any danger in reading him. he has. Uh, he, he wrote a lot, actually. It's, it's pretty amazing. He was a very, very talented theologian, was present at the First Council of Constantinople as a kind of peritus, if you know that word. A peritus is a theologian who accompanies a bishop. So the bishops are the ones who deliberate at the council. But not all bishops have really strong training in theology. Oftentimes bishops are more uh, acquainted with canon law and uh, governing the church. So oftentimes they have these periti. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, before he was a bishop, was a peritus at Vatican II. He was an advisor to the German bishops on theological questions because he was an expert theologian. Evagrius was one of the experts at Constantinople in 386, (laughs) or or whenever it was, maybe 381. Uh, And... um, He eventually went into the Egyptian desert and became a monk there and was the first systematic theologian of desert monasticism. So he wrote a lot, a lot of books, but there are four of them that kind of constitute his classic theology and spirituality. Um, The first three have difficult Greek names. I'll sort of give you a translation of them. The Praktikos... Uh, or we could call it the, the practical life or the active life. The Gnosticos, which means the knower. Now this is advice for those who are entering into contemplative life. So the sort of warnings to those who are moving into this area of learning about theology. And then finally, the Kephalia Gnostica, which are chapters on knowledge and explain the meanings of created things. Finally, he has a book called On Prayer. We, this, this book we have in our gift shop. So we have the Practicos and On Prayer. And they're the bookends of this, this arc that he has. So again, first we, we focus on behavior. We move through knowledge. And finally, prayer just kind of naturally springs up because we know God. And uh, we, we can converse with him as a result. So... <clears throat> Uh, The reason I want to bring up Evagrius is because I'd like to spend just a little bit of time explaining a little more about uh, distinctions within these these two stages, the stage of behavior, the stage of knowledge. And then uh, I'm guessing, as I said, you're going to have a lot of questions, so I'll stop early enough that we have plenty of time for discussion. Uh, Let me start with uh, the knowledge part, because that's the easier part, actually. There are two levels to this, according to Evagrius. And in my opinion, this is very important. The first level he calls natural contemplation, or in his his Greek terminology, physike, or physics. (laughs) Uh, Where physics comes from this. Uh, What he means, however, is not a study of the natural forces or processes that govern the interaction of elements within the cosmos. What he means, rather, is a knowledge of why... God made things the way they are. What are the reasons for things? Why do we, I mean, one of the things I've been pondering over without uh, much progress, but I think if we could get this as Catholics, we would do ourselves a great favor. Why is it that to the naked eye, it appears that the earth is stationary and things revolve around us and that the universe is very small? But once we're able to invent telescopes, the universe suddenly becomes uh, in magnitudes larger and has all kinds of hidden treasures. You know, why did God set it up that way? These are the questions that natural contemplation seeks to answer. Why is it that the sun is the way it is? Why do we have seasons of the year? Um, why are our bodies the way they are? Why are peoples the way they are? Why is the, the earth's three quarters covered with water? <laughs> you know, uh, why did God make it that way? God could have made things any way he wanted. You know? So to, to approach the mind of God in a humble, inquiring way so that we can see God's providence in all things. Because God didn't make anything that wasn't for our benefit. Okay? There, all the things that God made were, were for 
our uh, sanctification. So in anything we can see, there has to be some reason for it. This is what Evagris calls natural contemplation. I think until about 50 years ago, in the West, we had entirely forgotten about this idea. Uh, it's, it's there in the tradition. You, you can catch glimpses of it, say, in Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but um, shortly after Aquinas, we get a whole revolution in theology that talks about how um, God uh, could have made things other, and therefore, instead of focusing on what he did make, sort of focusing on speculation about what God could have done otherwise, and I, I don't find this very fruitful, but it, it's a major part of theology from, say, 1350 until 1600, when uh, there were some decrees shortly after Trent that sort of put with this uh, speculation down. But we haven't really recovered a full sense of an embodied understanding of God as permeating the universe. Uh, and uh, this would, Evagrius can help us with this. He's very interested in this. Uh, the second part of spiritual knowledge is really the knowledge of God proper. So to know who God is, what God is like, how to speak with him, how to listen to him, etc., And have, have a personal relationship Right? Uh, and to do that, there's this whole series of preparations we go through. So that's, the, that's spiritual knowledge. Let me say very briefly a couple things about the active life, or the life of virtue, um, that are helpful to understand in this, this classic, old, very old-fashioned tradition. So the, his uh, evocative classification of the vices is the same as Cassian's. They are related to what become the capital sins. So we, we know the capital sins uh, are gluttony, lust, anger, avarice, sloth, envy, pride, right? I get them all in, I got seven. So, uh, these are an adaptation of this older system. This older system itself is an adaptation of Socrates, if you believe that Plato is reporting accurately what Socrates taught. And uh, in, in their philosophy, the human soul has three parts. The lowest part is the part of just the, the natural desire to, to preserve our bodies. So we have to eat, we have to sleep, and so uh, our bodies make demands on us. Uh, then the second part is what they call the irascible part. This is the part that defends us against dangers from outside. Okay? And then the final part is the rational part. Okay? And you notice that they, they saw this in terms of a hierarchy in the body. So the rational part is located in our brains. Uh, the irascible part is located in our chests where we feel anger and strength and, and pride and so on. And then, and say, our stomach is where we feel more of the need to eat and, and so on. Uh, so the, the lower parts, gluttony, lust, avarice, are represented in the belly. Then anger, sadness, acedia are represented in the chest. Pride and vainglory are, are spiritual ills, where we think wrong things about ourselves and others, right? So all of these faculties of the soul are meant for the good things. When they malfunction, they become what we call passions. Okay, they are things that we suffer, that we undergo. They're out of our control. Uh, they're vices. You know, vice is a habit that controls us in some way because something that we should do well, like, again, there's nothing wrong with eating. If you don't eat, you will likely starve to death, and God does not want this. Okay, so eating is fine. Uh, but it has to be done in a rational way. You know? That doesn't mean we can't ever have anything nice either. Um, you know, monks are renunciants, so you shouldn't necessarily follow our plan of life. Um, it might be correct at certain times of life to celebrate and have a wonderful meal and to, to celebrate the delights of, of spices and wines and so on. But there are other times when we should fast. Okay? And so knowing those times is a matter of virtue, the matter of temperance. Uh, when should I, how much should I eat and when? And of what type? Okay. When we're functioning correctly, we have the virtues. When we're malfunctioning, we have vices. 
in each of these areas of the soul. So the active life uh, is about learning what our vices are and how to address them and how to fix them and become virtuous. Uh, there are two things I want to say before I give uh, a wrap-up here. Two cautions. One of them, They've come up already. The first one is that uh, I really want to stress that virtue is not a habit, and it's not a matter of following rules. Um, the, uh, in, in modern moral philosophy, uh, moral philosophers usually categorize different philosophies according to three schools of thought. Uh, the first one is some kind of consequentialism or utilitarianism, which is to say the right action is the one that brings about the most good for the most people. Uh, this is notoriously problematic because, um, you know, what's better, uh, again, to, to eat oysters with white wine or to play chess? <laughs> right. These are both goods, potentially, but how do you measure them against each other? And is it better for five people to enjoy chess or for one person to enjoy oysters? You know? So these are, this is a very popular uh, way of thinking about morals today, but it, it, it simply doesn't work. The second possibility, and one that's tempting for us as, as devout followers of, of our Lord, is um, the, the fancy name would be deontological uh, morality. This would be rule-based. So we do what God commands. So God made rules, we follow the rules. This is not a bad place to start, okay, because oftentimes uh, we need to be told, okay, don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's helpful to, to have a commandment like, you know, don't kill. Alright? Because then that stops us if we're ever thinking of doing that from not only harming the other person but from harming ourselves, you know. So, uh, so rules are not bad, but they don't make up the whole of the, of the good life. Uh, Catholic moral theology is normally called eudaimonistic, uh, which is a fancy Greek word which just means good spiritedness. It means having a good joyful disposition about life. Okay? And this comes about from knowing the good and pursuing it, knowing what what, what pleases God in all circumstances by a kind of innate uh, intuition about things, like knowing how to live well. Uh, this is a, a very lofty teaching, but it's, it's also very encouraging because uh, the problem, the big problem with rules is that you'll hear this said, critics of the church will say, you know, oh, well, there's nothing in the Bible about contraception, right? And this would be true. So where do we get the rule from? Well, uh, the church says, right? Well, what gives the church warrant to do that? Well, they sort of do this calculus based on other rules. Um, if, if we're eudaimonistic, we can say, yes, we need rules uh, about these things, but we don't derive the rules directly from uh, sort of divine revelation, but from knowing how to live well. And in the experience of the church, certain things don't allow us to flourish as human beings to our full extent as, as those living together. So the church is able to discern these things from a collective life lived together in the Lord. Uh, and so, so rules are not dispensable. We can't get rid of them. But they don't exhaust the possibilities. And oftentimes you get in, think of King Solomon again, you know. There's no rule that says when two women come and they both claim that this child is their own, you do X, right? Solomon just has this sort of wisdom about the situation. And he says, well, I know what mothers are like. I know how they'll react if I threaten to kill the child. You know, and the, the one woman reacts the way a mother would and the other does not. Uh, and so this is a virtuous kind of uh, understanding of life. It's a eudaimonistic. It's a discernment of what people are like and what brings us happiness. Okay? And this is what God wants for us. He actually wants us to be happy. All right? Uh, so don't underestimate, though, how much we could fool ourselves. <laughs> In saying this, I don't mean to make it sound like vices are easy to conquer. Uh, the second note uh, I've already said, and that is that even though we've got these stages, we've got the lower vices, we've got the irascible vices and virtues, we've got the spiritual life, etc., 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 uh, the 
monastic fathers will say we're always sort of fighting on all fronts at once. Usually there's one place where we're working harder. I think you all probably have had this experience. You know, sometimes I'm really struggling with anger. (laughs) I'm really having trouble with this person in my life, right? Or sometimes I'm really struggling with food. Or I'm really struggling with pride. Sometimes I find, oh my gosh, it's really easy for me to live in a virtuous way today. And we get overconfident. (laughs) Right? So we're always working at all these things at once in some sense. So just because we have made some progress doesn't mean that we can, we've become immune to the temptations that beset us in in the the passions. Okay? Let me stop there. And uh, I've covered a lot. (laughs) And uh, I'd like to hear from you uh, what... Uh, seems like I've, I've said that doesn't make sense, or, or I've skipped a, skipped too much, tried to do too much. Where where can I help you understand what I'm talking about here? It, yes. The, uh, that's on the internet. Oh yeah, yeah. I read the conferences on the internet. The conferences, yes, yes. I put links up there. Yeah, if you go to osb.org. OrderSaintBenedict.org. Uh, they have a link to the conferences and the institutes there, yes. as well as the rules. Yes. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John. I mean, you mentioned a lot of readings and all books. Where is a good place to start? I mean, you know, I know it goes the rules. Yeah. Start with those, or some of these subjects a little more involved in terms of at least my understanding. Right. Right. Um. I, I personally find the, the practicos of the Vagrius very practical, if I can put it that way. Um, not only is it easiest to understand, but he's dealing with things we can all relate to at, at some level. Um, you know, how we fool ourselves about vices, you know. One of the most helpful things, I, I'm, I'm not really beset by avarice, but I find his definition of it to be fascinating. So, you know, most of us think about avarice, for example, as... Uh, wanting to have too much money. And he says it's actually about fear, because we want to provide for ourselves. If we have a lot of money, we think we can buy off <laughs> things that will hurt us. You know, we, can, we can protect ourselves. And it's very insightful, because you know, that, that's something all of us, we have our ways of, of doing that. So I personally have found Evagrius to be really helpful. He's easy. He writes, his books are short. He has these short paragraphs that you can just meditate on. Uh, so that book, uh, the, the other one of his that's fairly accessible, I think, is um, called Ad Monacos, uh, To the Monk, or the To the Monks, I guess. Um, and uh, the, the, the last suggestion I would make would be a modern book. It's uh, Margaret Mary Funk's book, Thoughts Matter. So... Margaret Mary Funk, she's a retired prioress from uh, Beach Grove, Indiana. Wonderful author, wonderful speaker. She has a book called Thoughts Matter. And she talks about the eight vices in there from a modern perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to draw back to another thing you said at the beginning of your talk, mm-hmm. it's so important for us to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering where, where, where is sort of the best treatment so, uh, say, nepsis in the Western tradition. Yeah. Um, actually, the, the, um, the author I'm thinking of, but I don't know where you'd find his works at this point, is, um, it's terrible, I can't think of his name now. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he's from Fotike. Um, what is his name? Uh, yeah, he he likens the the spiritual person to the fisherman, and uh, the reason it's important to clear our passions, according to Diodocus, is his name. D i a d o c h u s. I'll have to put all this on our website so you can find it, so you don't feel the pressure. Yeah. 
D-I-A-D-O-C-H-U-S. Uh, his writings are part of the liturgical tradition. They appear in the, the Roman breviary. Uh, he has a number of spiritual conferences in which his image, which I find very helpful, is the fisherman. So if, you've, if you have done uh, fishing, which I'm not a fisherman myself. I've only done it a couple times. When the water is clear and calm, you can see what you're fishing for, right? Uh, when the water is turbulent, it stirs up all the gunk from the bottom of the river wherever you're fishing, and you can't see anything. And so you can't catch the fish. You don't know when they're coming, and you can't, you can't lure them in. If you have a spear or a net or something, you can't snag them. Uh, so the idea is when we're struggling with passions, the passions stir up our minds and they don't allow us to think clearly. And they don't even allow us to identify what we're thinking. And you know, this is, again, as one who struggled with anger, one of the things about angry people is they don't make any sense. <laughs> right? And when you're, when you're in the midst of being angry, you think, I'm totally right. And uh, then later you think, oh my gosh, that was making no sense. Why is that? Because the, the thoughts are coming so fast, uh, and, and there's so little discernment, that it clouds the mind. Evagrius talks about this, that the mind gets cloudy, and we can't see what's going on in there. Uh, so we have to learn sort of to sit still, you know, count to ten, think, uh, become aware of what's driving this, because... Uh, in, in my experience, uh, the, the plus side of, of anger is that uh, in 100% of the cases that I've been able to really step back and look at what's making me angry, it's because somebody's doing something that reminds me of something about me that I don't like. <laughs> and I project it on, onto that person. Yeah. So, uh, but that only can happen, uh, sometimes it takes me two years to figure that out. And why I got angry in this situation. So it requires a lot of reflection, but a lot of disengagement from the passions and awareness. Uh, so I don't know if that's helpful, but well, I think it's interesting. I'm working, when I work with people, mm -hmm. uh, very often that's the problem. There are people are unable to pay attention to what's going on mm -hmm. interior. interior. Yep, yep. Um, so one of the practices I've started to use when I'm working with someone say in, in the Western tradition we have a couple of things. One would be the divine office itself. So to pray the divine office, again, even if it's one psalm, but to really pray it in such a way that I'm paying attention to what the psalm actually says, uh, will do the same kind of thing. It, it, it trains me to focus my attention on words that uh, are, are not my own thoughts. You know, sort of I'm, I'm having to train my own thoughts to focus on something outside. And it makes me aware of what's distracting me from it. And then the distractions can be objects to examine later on and say, like, why am I, uh, uh, you know, another saying from the Desert Fathers, you know, prayer is warfare because as soon as you start to pray, all the distractions flood in. And the distractions can be helpful if we can recognize them as such, because they can tell us sort of where our hearts need some work. What are the things that are bothering us right now? The other uh, thing that's popular these days, which I do find helpful, though it's, it's good to have somebody kind of moderate this for us if, if we can't do it ourselves, is journaling. So to just write down what I'm thinking uh, as, as honestly as I can, and then come back to it later when I'm in a different place. Uh, again, sometimes it's very mortifying. 
And I, you know, I'm, I've been working on this book. Who knows if I'll ever finish it? But it's about uh, my my life in, in music. And I was a songwriter before I entered the monastery. And uh, one of the things I found that's that's very interesting and also kind of embarrassing, but also but hopefully helpful for other people is I have a record of all of my thoughts from 25 years ago and the lyrics I wrote, <laughs> you know, and the poetry I wrote. <clears throat> and uh, to look at this from a different perspective uh, allows me some objectivity on my own thinking that I didn't have at the moment when I was writing it, you know. So journaling helps us to do that. It gives us separation, puts a distance between myself and my thoughts. And it helps me to realize that I am not my thoughts. I'm different than my thoughts. My thoughts pass through me, uh, but they don't have to determine me, and I don't have to be my thoughts. Journaling helps to uh, create them as an object separate from me. The, the, the only warning I have about journaling is that it can become something very self-referential and obsessive, you know, uh, and all about me, rather than something that allows me to objectify my thoughts. So, um, I have about three minutes if there are other questions. And let me say, uh, in, in concluding then, if you do think of any questions, if there's something you'd like me to address on our website, uh, I do have this blog, I don't update it that frequently, but if, if you give me something to something that you really want to know about. <laughs> uh, as, you, as you can tell, I usually have a ready answer for most of these questions. Uh, and uh, I, I'm happy to try to write them down. I have a question just on Metro, that it's Mother's Day. I just want to say thank you all. Thank you. Yes, happy Mother's Day. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was supposed to mention that somewhere in my homily. Or <laughs> How wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, thank, and thank you all for your being here. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen.